As I said last night, um, we have um, two boys in ministry, Andrew and Simon. Uh, uh, Simon, the second son, is the most sensitive of our three children. He takes after his mother. Uh, the eldest, Andrew, is the opposite. As a child, he was always assertive, strong-willed, and stubborn. And I can't blame him for that because he takes after me. Uh, as a child, that cycle of bad behavior followed by discipline, followed by protest, followed by more discipline was repeated again and again. Simon, with his sensitive nature, was the exact opposite. Uh, he was always compliant. You simply had to raise your voice, and the thought of disappointing or displeasing his parents was enough to induce the remorse from him that was so difficult to extract from his older brother. And those personality traits continued, of, of sensitivity and stubbornness, continued into their teenage years. Both traits, of course, when sanctified and harnessed by the Holy Spirit, can be translated into something good and positive. Stubbornness can become boldness, and sensitivity, of course, is a key in our growth in grace and our sanctification. But those uh, traits can have their negative influences well. One evening, Simon left his mobile phone as a teenager, I hasten to add. He, he left his mobile phone unattended, and it buzzed, and I noticed the text was from his then girlfriend. Curiosity got the better of me. <laughs> and I opened his text uh, messages uh, to read what was said. And to my horror, I discovered they were a series of text messages from his then girlfriend who was trying to encourage him because he had been overtaken with doubt and he had begun to question the reality of his own conversion. So here was I as a father on the horns of a dilemma. Did I simply ignore it? Or did I um, confess and go to him and try and help him in the spiritual difficulty that he had experienced? Well, spiritual concern outweighed embarrassment, and I went to speak to him about the matter. When we chatted, I discovered as a young man he was experiencing temptations that he had never experienced before and as a result was beginning to question the reality of his conversion. His sensitive conscience led him to doubt his, the reality of a work of grace in his own heart. I tried to reassure him that temptations and doubts were part and parcel of the experience of every believer and he would battle with them to the day that he died. And he looked at me really quite shocked and he said, Dad, you never have doubts, do you? And for a brief moment, I thought I'd said the, the wrong thing. And the pedestal on which he had placed his dad and his pastor suddenly collapsed. Those in ministry shouldn't have doubts, was what he communicated to me with that bewildered look on his face. They shouldn't, but they do. We have a number of examples of that in Scripture, but none quite so shocking as those expressed by John the Baptist in Matthew 11 and verse 3. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? John has been arrested, and he's placed in prison for questioning, essentially, the morals of Herod. According to Josephus, he's being held at Mahilus, um, the winter palace of Herod, which is five miles east of the Dead Sea. 
enjoy some privileges, and it seems that uh, his disciples can come and visit him and carry out little errands for him. And so in Matthew 11, he sends two of them, Luke tells us there were two, to ask this question, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, there is no way of avoiding the implication that John the Baptist, at this point in his life and ministry, is entertaining real doubts as to the messianic identity of our Lord. Now, I realize in saying that I'm putting myself at variance with most of the older commentators and siding with the newer ones, generally a practice not recommended. So, Oregon, Christostom, and Augustine, Calvin, Melanchthon, and Luther, Doddridge, Wesley, and Ryle all believed that John didn't really experience doubts, but he was employing a teaching device in order to turn the hearts of these two disciples away from himself to Jesus. However, I have to say there's not a hint of evidence in the text to say that's right. In fact, the very opposite is true. Notice in verse 2, the question is prompted by the reports that John received while in prison of the activity of Jesus. That's what prompted the question. Also, I think the 19th century Scottish commentator James Morrison is, is accurate when he says, if this was a means of simply teaching the disciples, it throws a shadow on the integrity and transparency of John. Why would he ask a question that suggests a doubt if there was no doubt? And you can see what he's saying. Why place a doubt in the mind of the disciples if there was no doubt in the first place? And then lastly, when you look at the response of Jesus uh, to this question, you discover that his response is very much tailored to John and to his specific needs. So I think there is no doubt that John the Baptist experienced real doubt in his life and ministry at this point. Now, I want you to notice uh, three things this morning. First of all, the reality of doubts in the life of the servant of God, the reality of doubts. When the disciples of John asked the question, and after Jesus had answered them, Jesus gives this wonderful assessment of John's ministry in verses 7 to 15. It seems that John's disciples had asked this question publicly, but Jesus didn't want the public to think any less of him because he expressed these doubts. And so after the two men leave, our Lord gives this lengthy defense of the ministry of John. It's a wonderful description of the man and his ministry. Earlier, John had borne witness to Jesus. Now Jesus bears witness to John. In a series of rhetorical questions, Jesus tells us three things about John. First of all, he tells us he was a strong man, a man of great conviction. Look at verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. What did you go out to see when you went out to hear John? A reed blown this way and that way by the wind, someone who was weak and unsteady and unstable? Did you hear him because he was some kind of spiritual wimp without strength and courage? On the contrary, one of his attractions was that he was a man of conviction, a man of courage who thundered out against the sins of his generation without fear and favor. A wimp. Lacking courage, everyone knew that wasn't the case. 
a reed swaying in the wind, a man pleaser. There may have been an allusion to that for one of Herod's favorite symbols uh, was the Galilean reed that he had minted on his coins. Was John just an opportunist, a time server, telling Herod what he wanted to hear, taking the king's shilling? How could that be when the very reason he was in prison was he dared to confront uh, Herod about his morality? One occasion in the House of Commons, Winston Churchill faced Ramsay MacDonald and he rose and said this. I remember as a child being taken to the circus which contained an exhibition of freaks. But the exhibit that I wanted to see most was advertised as the boneless wonder. My parents judged that the spectacle would be too revolting and demoralizing for my youthful eyes. And I have waited 50 years to see a boneless wonder. And then lifting his finger, he pointed at Ramsay MacDonald and said, there he is on the benches opposite. Was John the Baptist a boneless wonder? Not at all. He was a man of strength, of courage and conviction. Don't think anything less of him, says Jesus, because he has these doubts. He's a strong, strong man. But secondly, he was a committed man, a man of self-denial. Look at verse 8. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. The, the original literally reads soft clothes. And it's used in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 where it's translated as effeminate. What did you go out to see? A dandy in the desert? A flouncy, effeminate excuse for a man, one on the cutting edge of fashion, perfectly groomed and perfectly dressed. On the contrary, he wore the typical garb, garb of a homespun prophet. He fed himself on locusts and wild uh, honey. He lived in the desert. Historians tell us that some of the scribes of our Lord's day had forsaken their drab clothes that distinguished them in their calling and taken them, exchanged them for the colorful robes of Herod's court. Is that the kind of man you went out to see? Someone who compromised on their calling for personal comfort? Everyone knew that wasn't true. His life was lived in radical self-denial. John MacArthur says his lifestyle was a living visual protest against self-indulgence and self-centeredness. He had sacrificed his comforts, his ambitions, his desires, his own life ultimately, that he co might commit himself to this task of serving God. He was a committed man. So here's our Lord's assessment of John's ministry. He was a strong man, a man with great conviction, a committed man, a man who lived in radical self-denial. And thirdly, he was a great man, a man entrusted with a wonderful ministry. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Did you go out to see a prophet, says Jesus? Yes, you did. That's exactly what he was. He was a prophet. Now that in itself is remarkable because remember, the voice of prophecy had been silent for 400 years. That silence was broken by John. Yes, you're right, says Jesus. He was a prophet, but more than that, he himself was the subject of a prophecy. 
Jesus identifies John as that Elijah-type character prophesied by Malachi who would prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant. Now, that would have left them stunned, asking all kinds of questions. But Jesus goes on and he says in verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In all of Old Testament revelation, says Jesus, there is no one, no one greater than John. Greater than Abraham. Greater than Moses. Greater than David. If the assertion that John was Malachi's messenger stunned his listeners, this would have blown their minds. Of course now Jesus meant greater in the sense that he bore a clearer, fuller, and greater and more complete witness than anyone else before him, but still greater than them all. He didn't necessarily have greater faith than Abraham. He didn't display necessarily greater meekness than Moses or, or greater devotion than David, but he did see more clearly and speak more directly and proclaim more fully uh, about our Lord uh, Jesus than anyone else. It fell to him on the unfolding of redemptive history to say, he is the one. He is the one. So here we have this amazing description and defense of John the Baptist. He was a strong man. He was a committed man. He was a great man. In fact, greater than anyone else before him. And yet he is the man who expressed honest-to-God doubts about the identity of Jesus. And Jesus seems to be saying, don't think anything of the less uh, of him because of that. Great men, great Christians with great ministries can have great doubts about Jesus. Now, if such a great man experienced such great doubts while in ministry, are we not likely to experience them too? Are we not likely at times to question our calling to ministry, to question our effectiveness in ministry, to question our suitability for ministry, to question even our salvation in ministry. It's not unusual for great men, great Christians, with great ministries to have great doubts about their faith. The reality of doubts in the life of the servant of God. The second thing I want you to notice is the reason for doubts in the life of of the servant of God. Why did such a strong man, such a committed man, such a great man like John experience doubts uh, at this point in his ministry? Well, I'm sure there are many factors, but let me try from the text to pick out three. First of all, John found himself in difficult circumstances. Look at verse 2, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing. When he heard in prison what Christ was doing. He was in prison five miles east of the Dead Sea 
uh, isolated and cut off. That's Spurgeon's explanation. Spurgeon in his commentary in Matthew says, he did not make a good caged bird. He was off the wilderness and river and his faith began to flag. All his life he had lived in open spaces, the sky above him, nature around him, the sun upon him. I'm sure he would have concurred with John Denver, sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. But when there's no sunshine, he wasn't that happy. Here is John, uh, Spurgeon says, caged like a bird, deprived of his freedom, confined to this small, dark, underground dungeon. One commentator says, John asked the question because his cruel captivity had put tremors into his heart. Secondly, I think uh, not only was he in prison, but he was deprived of his ministry. The very thing that God called him to, his great raison d'etre, the great compulsion that lay behind his life to preach, he could no longer do that. He could no longer exercise the gifts that God had given him. Remember, too, there was this accumulation of persecution that had been building up the whole time during his ministry. So all of these circumstances militated against his confidence in God. And that's so instructive for us. When we experience what Shakespeare calls the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, but which we know to be the dark providence of God, there can be a, a, a temptation in our lives to doubt, to question the love of God for us and his care and provision for us. We begin to wonder if we really are the objects of his love. A person loses their health. A husband loses his wife. A parent loses a child. A preacher loses his pulpit. A missionary loses his ministry. A retired minister or missionary loses their influence and they begin to question if, if God really does love them. That sentimental saccharine country and western song by Chris Kerstovison, love what, uh, Lord what did I ever do to deserve love from you, at least in our minds becomes Lord what did I ever do to deserve this from you. Difficult circumstances, even a change in circumstances, can tend to raise questions in our minds about the faithfulness and love of God. That's the first thing, difficult circumstances. The second, I think, similar to the first, but has more to do with John's ministry, unresponsive hearts. Jesus concludes his explanation of John's ministry with a little parable there in verses 16 and 17. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Here are two groups of children and they're playing in the marketplace. One says, let's, let's play weddings. You, you be the minister, you be the bride, and you be the groom, and you can hum the wedding march. And it's all organized. And they, oh, we don't want to do that. We did that yesterday. It's so boring. Well, let's play funerals then. Uh, you, you can be the minister. You four can be the pallbearers. And, and uh, you can be the grave digger. Oh, we did that last week. We don't want to play funerals anymore. Now, Jesus draws out the lesson in verses 18 and 19. 
For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The they in verses 18 and 19, we know from Luke, are the scribes and Pharisees who by and large rejected the ministry of both John and Jesus. And they rejected John because of his lifestyle, his asceticism, his behavior. He's a bit strange. He's a bit weird. You see what he eats? He lives in the wilderness. And they rejected Jesus for exactly the opposite reason, because he mixed freely and he fared sumptuously. They rejected both, and the excuse in their rejection was to find a fault in the messenger. And that's what a lot of people do. To justify their rejection of the message, they highlight the inadequacy, or at least the perceived inadequacy, of the messenger. And that's why those in ministry face more than their fair share of criticism from both inside and outside the church. It's the means that people employ to justify the ministry that they're being given. The religious establishment, the custodians of the truth, the very people that John might have expected to embrace the truth, who had given themselves to the study of the truth, rejected the truth. And in order to reject the truth, they found fault with the one who delivered the truth. And I would suggest to you that that rejection had an adverse effect uh, upon John. It affected him deeply. You know, when, when Paul comes to Athens, we're told that some sneered at his message. I'm sure that led to the point in 1 Corinthians 18 where uh, he says, well, the Lord appeared to him and says, do not be afraid for I am with you. No one will attack and harm you for I have many people in this city. Do not be afraid. Uh, Keep on preaching, the Lord says, that there was a very real temptation in the life and ministry of Paul at that point to withdraw from the very thing that God had called him to. So difficult circumstances, unresponsive hearts, disappointed hopes. According to Don Carson in the Expositor's Expositor's Bible Commentary, the the sole reason for John's doubts lay in disappointed hopes. I'm not sure it's the sole reason, but it certainly was a major contributing factor. We're told in verse 2 that the question he asked was prompted by the reports he heard of what Jesus was doing, literally the works of Christ. Now that expression indicates not only his miracles, but his teaching and his sending out of the twelve. It was these reports that precipitated the doubts. Now why would that have been? Why would the reports about what Jesus was doing have this adverse effect? upon John. Well, to understand that, you've got to understand something of the ministry of John. What did John preach about? What was his message? Well, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, you have a good summary there of his his ministry. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What was his message? Immediate wrath, immediate judgment, 
Verse 10, the axe already is at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment, wrath, immediate judgment, immediate wrath. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, his, uh, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's message was a message of judgment. He was expecting the Messiah to usher in the end of the age. He expected the Messiah to bring about the ultimate division, to gather wheat into the barns and to gather the chaff to be burned. That was to be the end of the age. But instead, he hears of Jesus going about the country preaching fine sermons, healing the sick, sending out the twelve, and riding high, at least at this point in his ministry, on a crest of popularity. Where was the judgment? Where was the destruction of evil? Where was the rewarding of righteousness and the punishment of wickedness? Where was the kingdom of God? To John, the coming of the Messiah meant immediate wrath, but he didn't see the judgment coming. John's hopes and aspirations were dashed when he saw what Christ was doing. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And that's exactly what John was experiencing, a sick heart, disappointed hopes unrealized expectations and those those disappointed hopes and unrealized expectations give rise to massive doubts in his life i remember when i was first converted reading a quote from dl moody that famous quote this world has yet to see what god will do through a man who is fully committed to to him well as a teenager i wanted to be that man I wanted to be that man. And, and that desire led me to college at the age of 19, um, enabled me to push through my comfort zone and to do something that doesn't come naturally to me, to preach, sent me to a town to plant a church at the age of 22. Romantic and naive, yes. But I left um, a college with a hunger in my heart, with fire in my bones, zeal in my belly that was unquenchable and unstoppable. I would preach and people would be converted. Missionary interest would be exp- expanded. Um, Arminianism would be defeated. And the enemy uh, would be uh, eradicated. I was going to pull down the gates of hell With these bare hands, I was going to change the world. And the world didn't change. And then you enter your late 40s, early 50s, and you enter what is euphemistically called the male menopause. And suddenly it dawns on you that a lot of your hopes and dreams remain unfulfilled. I think your late 40s is a very dangerous time in ministry. Disappointed hopes unrealized expectation. They not only provoke a midlife crisis, but can unleash fearful doubts and questions in your mind. The reason for doubts in the life of the servant of God. Difficult circumstances, unresponsive hearts, 
disappointed hopes. The reality of doubts, the reason for doubts. The third thing I want you to notice is the remedy to doubts. How do we overcome these doubts when we experience them? Well, let me give you four principles that we need to apply from the passage. First of all, be realistic about the world in which you minister. Look at verse 12. From the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, there's a great exegetical problem here because the text can be translated either in a positive way or a negative way. So you can have it as two positives, as the NIV indicates. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold about it. That the kingdom of God is advancing powerfully, and if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to display a little bit of grit and determination. It can be translated as two negatives, as the ESV and RSV have it. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. In other words, the kingdom of God has suffered persecution, and violent people will continue to persecute the church. And third, it can be a combination of either a positive and a negative, or even a negative and a positive. Now, the first clause is ambiguous and could be legitimately translated either way. The second, which is slightly different, is always used in a negative sense. It always has to do with rape, pillage, and plunder. And it seems to me that Jesus is simply saying to this crowd, John is a great man, a great servant of God, and the reason he is in prison is because the kingdom of heaven is always opposed and often persecuted. Violent men seize it. The kingdom provokes opposition and persecution. And that's always been the case. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. Opposition, rejection, and persecution are to be expected. Sometimes I think we as conservative evangelicals have embraced the health, wealth, and prosperity, uh, prosperity gospel unconsciously. That we think if we're in the will of God, that blessing will automatically come. And, that, and, and difficulties will go. We expect, if we're living under the blessing of God, that the work will advance. Not necessarily. The very nature of our work provokes opposition, both human and dynamic. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, writes Peter, as though something strange was, uh, was happening to you. We are working in a world that is diametrically opposed to the very message that we proclaim. But we're not working for um, adulation in this world. We're working for eternity. We're not laying treasures up on earth. We're laying them up in heaven. We're in time for eternity. And eternity is where the blessing ultimately is to be received. We're called to deny ourselves, as we were thinking last night. We're called to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. But we want plastic crosses. We want lightweight crosses. We want crosses like those suitcases with wheels on the back that will move without too much uh, demand upon us. The life, this life and this world is difficult. That's the reality. It's difficult for the Christian, and it's difficult for the servant of Christ. Be realistic about the world. 
Secondly, recognize the importance of the word. Look at our Lord's response to John's question in verses 4 and 5. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the, whole, uh, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, Jesus isn't simply citing the mirac- miraculous activities that accompanied his ministry as evidence of his messianic identity. What he's doing is quoting Scripture. And he quotes primarily from four passages of Scripture, Isaiah 26, 29, and particularly Isaiah 35 and 61. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 reads, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will dance like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, how... The verses that define our Lord's ministry. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus takes John back to the Old Testament scriptures as proof of who he was. Now, whatever Old Testament text John was familiar with, he was certainly familiar with the book of Isaiah. Because that's the book that he most often quotes from. In fact, from Isaiah 40, he defines his ministry. I am the voice of... Uh, of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. So Jesus takes John back to Isaiah, and he knows that John would know exactly what he's saying. He's giving him scriptural proof, scriptural evidence of his messianic identity. Look around, John. Scripture is being fulfilled, and just because the judgment hasn't arrived, which is also prophesied in those passages, doesn't mean that I am not the Christ. In his discouragement and in his doubt, he takes John to the Bible. And that's the key. It's holding on to the promises of God. It's resting in the promises of God. It's meditating upon the promises of God. It's appropriating the promises of God. That's how we overcome our doubts and revive our strength in ministry. You know, that's wonderfully illustrated in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? You know how John uh, Bunyan pictures Christian and hopeful and they leave the narrow way and the bypath meadow and they're captured by, by giant despair. And then they're taken to Doubting Castle. Doubting, Doubting Castle. And they're locked in this underground cell in Doubting Castle. And while, while in that dark, stinking dungeon, as Bunyan says, he sees before him a bottle of pills a knife, and a rope. Now, what would you do with a bottle of pills? You might take an overdose. What would you do with a knife? You might slit your wrists. What would you do with um, a rope? You might hang yourself. Bunyan's way ahead of his time. He's very perceptive that the Christian at times can be tempted by suicidal thoughts. But on the Saturday night, then, he finds this key, and this key is called the promise promises of God and he takes that key and he opens the door of the cell he opens the gate uh, of the the dungeon he opens the door of the castle and he escapes from the clutches of giant despair and he escapes from the dungeon in Doubting Castle isn't that powerful do you know when you are full of doubts There is this temptation to neglect the word, to rest on old sermons, 
to let your private devotional time slip, to ignore the word, but you are ignoring the very thing that is essential for your recovery, the promises of God. The word of God is absolutely crucial in our defense against Satan. Remember our Lord, we said to the young people again and again on three occasions, it is written, it is written, it is written. So we must be realistic about the world. We must recognize the importance of the word. And thirdly, we must rest in the providence of God. Look at verse 6. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now please remember the context. John is entertaining doubts because Jesus didn't quite do what he thought he should be doing. He didn't quite fit his picture of the Messiah. The Messiah would bring judgment, but he hears these reports of Jesus healing, teaching, and expanding his influence. Now says Jesus, look, I may not be doing the things that you want me to do at the time that you want me to do them. But John, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me, or offended by me, the ESV says. Henriksen translates it, repelled by me. The word means ensnared. It's used of the trapping of animals. A good word might be stumble. Blessed is the man who doesn't stumble on account of me. Because I don't do the things that you think I should be doing, don't turn away. Don't doubt. Trust in me. Today's English version, I think, totally reverts the meaning of the text when it says, happy are those who have no doubts about me. Better translation would be, happy are those who have no doubts because of me. In other words, we've got to learn to rest in the providence of God. We've got to rest in the sovereignty of God. See, so often we, we hold the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in our heads but not in our hearts. And when circumstances uh, spiral out of control and become beyond our control, we run about like headless chickens trying to sort out our own problems. But we need to realize that God is in control, that even the very fall of a sparrow from the tree is under his influence and under his control. And that no matter what uh, unfolds in our life, God is working all things together for our good. That we believe that, that we rest in that. That we throw our hands up and we say, well, God, I can't understand what you're doing. I see no rhyme nor reason to it. But I do believe that you're on the throne and that you're working out your purposes. And although these things... Purins used to say that providence is like Hebrew. You have to read it backwards to understand it. It's only when you, you look back you can see the hand of God. But, but even when these things don't make sense to me, that one day, as the old hymn says, the dark things shall be plain. And one day I'll see, one day I'll know, and one day I'll understand. John Stott says we're like um, short-sighted men at an art gallery and we're up so close that we can see all the detail, all the brush um, strokes, but we don't see the overall picture. But one day God's going to take us back and we're going to see the picture, the portrait of our lives and we're going to, oh, that's the reason. That's why God allowed that to happen. That's why it happened in the way it did at the time it did. 
And until that time, we've got to learn to rest in the sovereignty of God. Be realistic about the world. Recognize the importance of Scripture. Rest in the providence of God. And then lastly and quickly, realize the great privilege that you have. Look at verse 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, we've already looked at the first part of this verse, and we said that John's greatness lay in the fact that he could bear witness to Jesus more fully and more completely than any of the Old Testament saints could. Certainly, as verse 13 says, they prophesied about Jesus, but it fell to John in the stream of redemptive history to announce Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. John was the greatest because he introduced me. Now, it must follow. If John was the greatest, greater than all who preceded him because he had a fuller and more complete testimony about Christ, then it must follow that the least in the kingdom uh, is, is, is um, greater than John because he bears a more complete testimony than John did. And in that sense, the least in the kingdom is greater than John. John could announce the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. But he never lived to see the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. The least Christian on this side of the cross knows that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? True greatness in this world is not to be measured in, um, in terms of power or position or reputation or influence or authority. True greatness is to be measured in the extent that we bear witness to Christ. And here we are living this side of the cross called by God to serve him and to declare the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have this privilege of, of telling people that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a way that is open that we may go in at Calvary's cross is where we begin when we come as sinners to Jesus. That's our work. How wonderful. And you know, some of us get paid for it. That's our work. And what does it matter if we face difficult circumstances, unresponsive hearts, and experience disappointed hopes? We preach Christ crucified. And nothing's better than that. True greatness in this world is to be found in bearing witness to Jesus. Six months after you retire, someone will have replaced you. Forty years after you have died, no one will even remember your name. But 60 billion years into eternity, even a cup of water given in the name of Jesus will still be significant. Isn't that great? You may not be wiser than Solomon, bolder than Elijah, braver than David, meeker than Moses, stronger than Samson. As uh, wonderful as John, 
but you're greater than them all because you're living in the 21st century and you're called to make Christ known. What a privilege. What an honor. We must never lose that sense of wonder of being servants of the Lord Jesus. So I want you to go back to your room after coffee. We'll have our coffee first. And I want you to go back to your room and I want you to stand in front of the mirror and I want you to take a good look at yourself and I want you to say to yourself, I'm greater than Abraham. I'm greater than Moses. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than Elijah. I'm even greater than John the Baptist because I have this honor and privilege of declaring the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen.